Let's turn our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3 as we continue our journey through the book of Nehemiah together. At this point, Nehemiah has now arrived in the city of Jerusalem, answering God's calling upon his life to go there to help to initiate the project to restore and rebuild the broken down city walls and the gates that had been burned with fire to go and help a group of people who were in great distress and difficulty. And as Nehemiah has been given the open door by God and months of prayer sent out by the king under whose supervision he was serving as a cupbearer, he now arrives in the city with the good hand of God being upon him. And we're told in chapter 2, as we concluded it last time, that as he arrived there, he took about three days as he first arrived to just sort of it seems, recuperate a little bit after the long, arduous journey. And then that he arose in the night and hadn't yet told anyone what God had put in his heart to do and went around and just sort of started surveying the conditions of the city of Jerusalem at that time, taking note of exactly what condition things were in specifically. No doubt he had a plan in his heart. God had given him a vision but he wanted to get a little better bearing on the exact conditions that were there and a little better clarity before he initiated the project and started mobilizing the people to rally around him to participate in this project of rebuilding and restoring the walls. And when the timing seemed that it was right after he had viewed the wall in the evening hours, we're told in chapter 2, verse 17, that at a certain point he then said to the people, you see what distress we're in? and the conditions and the reproach towards God because of these things. And it says that he told them of the good hand of God that had been upon him and how God had been faithful and opened the doors, made provision for him to be able to arrive there. And it says that he gave to them sort of an invitation, a challenge of sorts, saying, let us rise up and build. And it says that the people set their hands to the good work. They began the project, and as we come now to chapter 3, it gives to us basically the description of how this actual construction process began to happen as they now start to restore and rebuild these walls and city gates that had suffered great destruction and devastation that were somewhat in a condition of rubble. And Nehemiah has now rallied the people of God. He's encouraged them with his vision and they want to join him and participate in this process. And chapter 3 records for us, if you looked ahead, the rebuilding of the wall as it begins. Now, if you read ahead in chapter 3 at all, you take notice it's, again, one of these places in the Scripture, a chapter with a lot of names, lists of different individuals and families and some of what they're doing. And certainly it can be a little bit tedious to work our way through it. But a couple observations we want to make from the chapter as it gives to us the record of the rebuilding process and as the people began to rise up and work. So let me just read some of the verses at the beginning of the chapter and we'll make some observations from it. It tells us, chapter 3, verse 1, that then Eliashib... The high priest rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate, and they consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the tower of a hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the tower of Hananel. Next to him, verse 2, Eliashib, the men of Jericho built, 
and next to them, Zakur the son of Imri built. Also the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with bolts and bars. And next to them was Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Mezekabel, made repairs. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, made repairs. Next to them, verse 5, the Tekoahites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. Verse 6, Moreover, Jehoiada, the son of Pasaiah, and Meshulam, the son of Besadiah, repaired the old gate, and they laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, Jadon, the Marathite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. And next to him, Uziel, the son of Harahiah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, leader of the half-district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Verse 10, And next to them, Jediah, the son of Harmoth, made repairs in front of his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, made repairs. Now, just from those first 10 verses, we start to get a little bit of a grasp from a content perspective of what's being described here and some of the language the Holy Spirit is using to record this. We notice who's involved in the building process. We notice what they're doing. We notice where they're serving, that God was taking notice of that, exactly the thing that they were participating in, or as we saw in one instance, even not participating in, those who were abstaining from work and not doing their part, why others were working together cooperatively to each do their share in the work of God that was taking place. A couple things we, I guess, could just sort of take notice here. If you notice back with me in verse 1, as this project begins, as this work of God starts, it tells us in chapter 3, verse 1, that Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren and built the sheep gate. I love to see there that the Holy Spirit takes notice that among the people of God, the highest ranking, if you would, spiritual leader at that time, the high priest, it says rose up, that is, he got from uh, up from a, a seated position, a resting position. He, he stood up, if you would, to embrace the call of God, and he was the first one to rise up, and it says there, to engage in the work. Again, whether just noted first by the Holy Spirit's purposeful design, or perhaps he was the one who somewhat led the way in the servant-hearted attitude and the willingness to roll up his sleeves and get involved and do what work was necessary for the Lord's purposes to come to pass. Either way, I think it's just a, a great example. You know, Jesus told us that we should look for servant leadership. Jesus, remember, said, the greatest among you is the servant of all, or, or the one who is greatest or chief should be, the idea is, servant of all. That there's those in the positions of leadership shouldn't be looking to be served. They should be the first ones rising up to start serving, the ones willing to do the work, to do whatever's necessary, and even by their good example, 
of service and willingness to labor in some way, they inspire others to follow their leadership and to want to come alongside and and work with them. And so it's beautiful to see the high priest here rising up with his brethren, the priests, and they begin to build the sheep gate, consecrating it, rehanging its doors, and tells us how far they built. Now, you take notice as well, in verse 2, it says to us, next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built, and then next to them, Zachor, the son of Imri, built. And we begin to see this refrain as you go through the chapter. It's repeated numerous times. We see this phrase there, next to, next to, next to. And it's just in the list describing how the people were working side by side next to one another. And again, it's putting the spotlight on the fact that this was a cooperative effort. Not one person could do all the work. It was a collective effort. Each person needed to do their part, and it was this group of men or this particular family or this individual doing their part where they were rebuilding the wall, putting their hands to the work, making their contribution to help in their labor, And it was each one doing that with someone else next to them doing the same things where God had put them, giving their effort to what God had them doing, building, rebuilding, hanging doors, doing these kinds of things. But it was that side-by-side partnership. There was this collective work of the people each doing their part but working together as a team. And of course, this just reminds us of God's design, that just like in the body of Christ, the Bible says that we are individually members of one another. And just like a body has many different members with different parts, and those parts are located at all different places from head to toe, uh, that we have hands and we have feet, we have internal organs, we have eyes and ears, and, and, and each part serves its purpose and must perform its function, but yet we're all interdependently connected to one another, just like in a human body. Each part does its share where it's at, and it it contributes its process, but it's also dependent upon the work and the necessity of the other parts that are in existence. And this is the picture for the body of Christ, that we're to work like a body, and that when we serve, we serve next to one another. There's that sense of camaraderie that sense of cooperation, that we're next to one another, you're doing your thing, I'm doing my thing, the person next to us over here is doing their thing, but we each know we're contributing our part, we're each doing our work, fulfilling our purpose, restoring, building up the kingdom of God. Again, they were building a wall. The Bible tells us that that Jesus says, uh, you know, upon this rock I will build my church, and that we are co-laborers with the Lord. We're builders together with the Lord, and we get to participate as Jesus is sort of the the captain and the foreman and the one who is really directing the work and making it happen and providing for it, but we each get to kind of do our part, and we serve next to one another in partnership doing that, and we should value and appreciate that it takes all of us to bring to pass God's work and complete the things that God wants done, and we work side by side next to one another in partnership, and you see that repeated refrain, this person next to that person, multiple times in this chapter, a beautiful picture. We notice as well in this chapter that it describes there multiple times, it says that they 
were rebuilding and they were making repairs. Notice in verse 4, it says, Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, made repairs. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. And next to them, Zadok. And there again, verse 4, that word repairs there, if you go through the chapter, again, the Holy Spirit repetition for sake of emphasis, 26 times, I believe it is in this chapter, we read that word repairs. And it's a reminder that that's what's happening. This is a restoration project. This is repairing things that were broken down, that were destroyed. And I think to a great degree, the work of the Lord, a lot of it, is a willingness to make repairs in people's lives, uh, to be willing to enter into a situation where people's lives have been broken down by the damage of sin or poor choices or hurtful things that have happened. And there are a lot of broken people, broken lives, fractured individuals. People's walls are broken down. They've been burnt or, or they've done things themselves uh, that have kind of just caused fi fires in their lives, that have caused areas to be damaged. And there's a lot of work in ministry of repairing people and seeking to restore and rebuild people who've been damaged and wounded or who've even just damaged and wounded a lot of times their own lives and have a lot of broken down areas. And, and we have to come along and help them repair and restore their lives through the ministry and the work of the Lord. And God uses us each to do that, rebuilding and repairing in different areas, in the place where he's called us to or the section that he wants us to contribute our labors towards. And, and it's a process that we get used by the Lord to do as his servants. And so there's a lot of repair happening in this process. Another thing that's interesting to take note of in verse 5, it tells us that next to them as it's describing this, the Tekoahites, it says, made repairs. There's our word again. But notice, the Holy Spirit takes note, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. So take notice, God in this chapter takes very clear uh, note of each person who's doing his work. God knows those who are working, and God also knows those who are not working who are kind of sitting on the sidelines, just watching others work, watching others participate and put their shoulders to the work and roll up their sleeves and make efforts to serve in the body of Christ or do ministry out in the world and keep the work of God moving to some degree. God is aware of those who are serving and working. He takes note. He knows your name. He knows what you're doing and where you're doing it. And he, he's taking notice of that. And he also knows those who are doing nothing or those who are doing very little. It says here that the nobles would not put their shoulders to the work. Now, why they weren't doing it, whether it was laziness, whether it was they weren't interested in that particular kind of work. Well, you know, we're not into construction and carrying stones and doing labor projects like hanging doors and putting bolts into gates. That, that's not our thing. Call us when you... Maybe just need some some counsel, or or maybe you want us to make some. But but we don't want to do that kind of work. That's just kind of menial or too practical. Or again, could have been many different reasons. Whether it was that they just didn't like that particular kind of work, uh, whether they felt they were above that kind of work, they wanted more of a management position rather than a labor type position of serving and doing labor and just work. 
whether it was they were just lazy or maybe just even apathetic or disinterested and their hearts were too attached to other things, maybe worldly affairs, and they were so consumed in worldly affairs they had no interest in the work of God. They had no real burden for the things of the Spirit or that God was interested in. We, we don't know, but God takes note, not only of those who are serving and working, but he also knows those who are not working, who are not serving in his purposes. Another thing we take note of is in this chapter here, as you work your way through it, is it describes the different people who are working. And repeated times in the chapter, it talks to us about those who were making repairs, it says, right in front of their own house. You notice in verse 10, it, it made notice, verse 10, it says, Next to them, Jediah the son of Haramuth made repairs in front of his own house. Uh, if you look down uh, in verse 23, after him, Benjamin, Hashub, made repairs opposite their house. And after them, Azariah, the son of Masaiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs, notice, by his house. Verse 27, after them, the Tekoahites repaired another section next to the great projecting tower as far as the wall. Verse 28, and beyond the horse gate, the priests made repairs, notice, each in front of his own house. In verse 30, we're told as well there that as they were making repairs, it says, after him, the end of verse 30, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs in front of his own dwelling. So notice, a lot of the people, it seems, were doing their ministry of making repairs, working on the wall right in front of where their own house was, right where their own dwelling was. And I think it's just a good reminder from the Holy Spirit that this is where our primary ministry should be and where our primary ministry should always begin, right at our own house. It wasn't necessary for them to go work at the neighbor's house or go up the street. There was work to do right there at their own house. And as each person was willing to do the work and the ministry at their own house, as each one did that, the entire wall would eventually begin to come together. But their top priority was right there doing work and ministry at their own house. That's the place to start. That's where our primary focus should be even as well as people of God. Ministry begins at home. We should first and foremost make sure that we are engaging in the work of serving and doing God's purposes within our own household, ministering in our own family, in our marriages, with our children, children seeking to even be servants in the home to their parents. But again, ministry starts at home. Before we run around trying to help the neighbors and help everyone else, we need to make sure that we are doing what's necessary to help and to minister to those in our own household. That's where true ministry starts. In fact, even in the New Testament, the Bible is very clear when Paul gives under the Spirit qualifications to enter into ministry as well as to remain in ministry for elders, that is, overseers in the church, what we might call pastors, elders. He describes there how it was necessary that they be ruling their own household well that they have a solid marriage, that they have children who are 
are faithful and obedient to their parents, not out of control, children that are you know, doing things that, that it just seems that the parent is unable to kind of keep them on track. But, but what the Bible says is that if a man can't rule his own household well, then how is he going to take care of the church of God? Because what's the church of God? It's basically just a bigger family. It's the family of God with many, many brothers and sisters and spiritual mothers and fathers, if you would. The Bible uses that analogy. And what God is saying is, look, if you can't minister well in your own family, if you're not able to lead effectively your own family spiritually with respect and in a way where they by are following your leadership spiritually, and if that's not successful— then the Holy Spirit is simply saying that if that's not successful, that's not a good basis then to think somehow that you would be successful on top of leading your own family to effectively lead a bigger spiritual family in the things of God. That the household is the proving ground. It's the revelation spot. We should look How is he doing with spiritual leadership among his own family? And if that is well and solid, that is a good indication that that would be someone. Again, it's one indication. It's not the only one, but it's one indication that's laid out in Scripture that's very important for a man to then take on the role of an elder, a pastor, to be a spiritual leader within the church. And I think it's something that should be maintained as well. That's something that our family is in a right place that gives us the right to continue serving in those capacities. So again, ministry begins at home, uh, and we want to make sure we always remember that and give ourselves to that. And and if we are trying to engage in other things and things aren't good at home for us, we need to get back to working right within our own household in the things of the Lord and give our best efforts there first because that is where the heart of the Lord would have us to be. And I think it's interesting in this chapter, there's multiple references to right in front of his own house. I think we shouldn't overlook that. One other thing we do take notice in this chapter is there's a reference to the different gates that are described. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, it refers to them building the sheep gate. In verse 3, then the fish gate. Verse 6, the old gate. Verse 13, the valley gate. 14, a reference to the refuse gate being repaired. Verse 15, a description of repairing the fountain gate. As you go down to verse 26, there's a reference to them making repairs in front of the water gate toward the east. Then again, verse 28, the horse gate being made repairs upon it by the priests. And then ultimately, verse 29, it says that they were making repairs there at the east gate. It's sort of in a counterclockwise direction. Remember, you had a wall, but you also had gates, which provided access as well as egress. So you could come in, and you could also go out through these gates. They were passageways. They were things that people went through in and out to experience different things as you would go in. You would have certain experiences, and of course, as you go out, you would have certain experiences. And certainly the Holy Spirit gives us reference to these things because they were a part of the wall, but many do see, even in looking at these references to the different gates, some spiritual analogy to some degree. Remember, the Bible tells us uh, that all things in the Scripture, to some degree, are seeking to represent Christ and point to Jesus, uh, we're told that Jesus expounded to them in the scriptures all things concerning 
himself regarding the Old Testament scriptures. Lo, in the volume of the book, it's written of me. And uh, we want to recognize that certainly when we go through the Old Testament at times, there are different things that we see that the Holy Spirit giving us literal accounts, but at the same time is also laying in those things sometimes spiritual analogies and typologies for us to see things about Christ or his life, his ministry, the the Christian experience. And certainly perhaps some of these references to these gates are reminders of things that are experiences in the Christian life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, gates bring about experiences. You go in a gate, you experience something. You go out a gate, you experience something. So with that in mind, it is interesting that the first gate that's referenced in verse 1 there is the sheep gate. And perhaps to remind us that Jesus is the good shepherd. The Bible says he's the chief shepherd and the overseer of our souls, uh, and that we are his sheep, and he's a great shepherd for us. And the way that we come to Jesus initially is to realize that we are like sheep who have gone astray, and we need a shepherd to rescue us, to restore us. We need a shepherd then to lead us and guide us and tend us, and that's what Jesus is. He's a great shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And Jesus said, my sheep Know my voice. It's interesting as well in verse 3, a reference to the fish gate. And perhaps that's just a reminder that once we come to know Jesus and we have an experience with him ourselves, that then he wants to send us out, that we might become fishers of men. Remember Jesus speaking to his disciples. It says that he called his disciples to himself, and he then told them, uh, Come, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. That is, we would be used by the Lord as he works in our life and we're sent out by the Holy Spirit, empowering and helping us to basically do what we can to win people to Christ, to to fish for men, to draw people in to their own experience and relationship with the Lord. And in some ways as well, remember that you catch a fish first Then you clean the fish, and perhaps maybe the fish gate also is a reminder in that way as well of how the Lord catches us first. He makes us his disciple once we're saved. Then, like the fish, once he catches us, then he starts cleaning up our lives. Then he begins to start working in us. He doesn't clean us up first, and we can't clean ourselves up first. First, Jesus catches us makes us his own, and like the fish, once it's caught, then he begins the cleansing process to start working in our lives. The third gate that's mentioned in verse 6 is the old gate. And perhaps in some ways, that's a reminder, that which is old, that which is ancient, that once we come to Christ, that he wants us to begin to recognize that there are certain old, ancient, established truths The faith, Jude says, that was given to the saints once for all. So many times as believers, we need to remember that we don't necessarily need new truths. We need new experiences spiritually. That needs to be a continuous thing, fresh experiences with the Lord, new experiences in the Spirit. But we don't need new truths. That's where we start to get in trouble. We need to cling to the old truths, the ancient truths. Ask for the old paths and understand that there are certain authentic, unchangeable truths of doctrine in the Scripture that were once for all given to us in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And 
These are the things that we need to build our lives upon, those ancient old truths that have been around for ages and ages. And the more we cling to them, the more we become doctrinally sound and we build upon a good foundation in our spiritual lives. Verse 13, it describes for us there how the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired fourthly. It says the valley gate. And perhaps the valley gate reminds us of humility and how not only our Lord Jesus came in great humility, that he left heaven, all of his glory and his excellence there at the right hand of God. He was king of kings and lord of lords, eternally existent. And yet the Bible tells us in Philippians 2 that Jesus, if you would, set aside that glory of the reign there upon the throne of God with his father. And he came humbly and he entered into this earth in humanity as a man. And he humbled himself even to the point of becoming obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And so Jesus, if you would, who was on the mountaintop of glory as the eternal son of God, humbly came into the valley of this world like a man living among us in full humanity, being God, yet at the same time being man simultaneously and entered into the valley of this filthy and sinful world, humbling himself that he might provide for us salvation for our lives. And of course, ultimately, that valley of humility is a good reminder because as we start to walk with the Lord, and certainly as we start to serve him and try and win people to the Lord and then get grounded in the old foundational fundamental truths of the Bible, we find that it starts to bring a real humbling process. And the Lord starts to take us through some of our own valleys. And we experience some challenges and tribulations. And there's a humbling process, but that humbling process is good for us because the plague of pride is so dangerous to us. And so sometimes the Lord takes us through the valley. Psalm 23 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And so the Lord takes us through our share of valleys to bring humility into our lives. Verse 14, he references the next gate that was being repaired among the walls, and that was the refuse gate being built. And again, refuse speaks of the rubbish or the trash, and perhaps very likely this was the gate whereby the refuse would leave the city, where the trash would go out and, and be removed that needed to be purged so that the city did not become contaminated with the filth of trash and refuse. And perhaps this is a good reminder of how this is what the Lord does in our life, that once we become his child, that the Lord begins to work by the power of his Holy Spirit to begin to get the refuse out of our life. He starts to clean out the garbage in our lives, to, to get that which defiles out of our minds, to get rid of the, the things that are just unhealthy and contaminate our hearts. Jesus said in John chapter 17, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Thy word is truth. And it's literally catheterize. And of course, the catheterization process is a medical process whereby you do what's necessary to help a purgen, person, person be able to purge out of their body that which needs to be removed from them. And, and Jesus says, Father, we need to do this for 
our followers, we need to catheterize them, purge out of their lives what is not good for their lives if it stood within them. And he says, this will be done by thy truth, as Jesus was praying in John 17. And so as we get to know the truth of the word of God, the truth sets us free. It sets us free from carnal attitudes and sinful behaviors and filth in our hearts and minds that are just going to pollute us as a person. And the Lord seeks to make us clean and rid us of those things to get those things out of our life that are hindering forces to true, healthy relationship with him or that we might walk in holiness and godliness. He starts getting the garbage out of our lives. We're told in verse 15 there also, the next gate that they were doing repairs and restoring was the fountain gate. And as we look at the fountain gate, we think of fountains of water. And again, we see perhaps a reminder of how Jesus speaking in the Gospel of John multiple times spoke about the work of the Spirit like uh, the flow of water, like a fountain of water. Jesus in John chapter 4 speaking to that woman at the Samaritan well spoke to her about how she kept drinking of that particular water there at the well. She would keep thirsting. But Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give to him will never thirst again. That would quench the thirst. He was talking about the spiritual thirst, the, the living water of the spirit that would satisfy and quench the inward thirst, the thirst for God. And then in John chapter 7, of course, we know that beautiful account where Jesus says on the last great day of the feast stood up and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me out of his heart shall flow forth rivers, fountains of living water. And it says that Jesus spoke this regarding the spirit of God. And so we need the fountain of living water. We need to drink from that, not stagnant, still, empty, polluted water of, of, of wells that, that just doesn't do something to help and bring life. We need the constant flow of the fountain of living water happening within us, that ministry of the Spirit, and that comes by the Spirit of God continuously working in our life, allowing ourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and Jesus continuing to give to us through our experiences with Him an opportunity to drink of the living waters, that fountain of His Spirit flowing within and ultimately out of and through our lives. If we go down to verse 26, we have a reference there to then the water gate. And the water gate, of course, perhaps reminds us of, of the cleansing effect, as we mentioned a moment ago, of the, the Word of God. Uh, the Bible speaks of how in Ephesians 5, there's the washing of the water by the Word. Psalm 119 says, How can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to thy Word? And so the Word of God, like water that, as we get a shower, washes the dirt and the filth off of us to make us clean. The, this is what the Word of God does. It washes our minds. It renews our minds and gets the garbage out. It helps us to think correctly and to think properly the way God wants us to view things, the way God wants us to think about things. It, it purges from us that which would defile us as the Word of God works within it has a cleansing effect upon our lives. It cleans up our heart. It cleans up our attitudes and the power of the word of God, the washing of the water of the word to cleanse from us that which is not good within us. It is the power of God's word. Again, I cannot emphasize to you enough as God's people the value 
of being in the Word of God. Nothing will cleanse your life. Nothing will change your life. Nothing will correct your life. Nothing will rid from your life more than the Word of God being properly having its impact within you by the Spirit of God who actually inspired the Word of God. So it is the Word of God working within us by the Spirit of God's ministry that brings powerful cleansing effect into our lives, that changes lives and transforms lives. I can't encourage you enough to take the time to drink deeply of the Word of God, to read it regularly, to make it something that just like you discipline yourself to eat regular meals, that you partake of the Word of God, that you feed upon it, that you drink deeply from its truths, and watch the effect that it will have in your life, that you take the time to make the investments to listen to the teaching of the Word of God, that you value, of course, we can't right now, gathering literally for assemblies, but when the opportunities to assemble for Bible studies are there, for Bible studies in small groups, midweek Bible studies, Sunday morning gatherings, when the Word of God is being taught, the power of the Word of God will revolutionize your life. And it will happen in a way where you don't even realize it's happening. It will just begin to bring tremendous changes within your life. Esteem the Word of God, give it its proper place in your life, and watch what it starts to do. Be disciplined about making sure that you spend time in it, reading it and letting it be taught to you, and watch the changes that it will bring. We read in verse 28 as well that beyond, it says also the horse gate, verse 28, the priests made repairs each in front of his own house. Now, as we read about the horse gate there, perhaps that is just somewhat of a reminder to us of the return of the Lord, how Jesus will one day come back and he will come back not as a humble, suffering servant as he came the first time as a shepherd for the sheep, but when he comes back the second time, he will come in power and great glory as the resurrected, glorified King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It tells us in Revelation 19, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a white robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of the mouth out of his mouth, excuse me, goes a sharp sword with which he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has a robe on his, and a name on his thigh written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a marvelous event that is one day going to come to pass when our Lord Jesus comes back and it tells us as he comes back as a warrior king, the almighty king of kings, the resurrected, glorified Lord coming back to then judge the earth. 
for those who've rejected him as Savior and Lord, to set up his kingdom upon this earth. And it says that when he comes back, he's coming back riding upon a white horse. And what's beautiful is it says that you and I, the saints, are returning with him. Verse 14 of Revelation 19, it says we follow him on white horses, that is, as his glorious spiritual army. And the reason I believe that we're returning with him is that we have already been removed by him. That is, we were raptured and removed, caught up to meet the Lord in the air before that seven-year period of tribulation begins to unfold on this earth. And then when he comes back in his second coming, he returns upon that white horse in all of his glory. And you and I riding upon horses with him as a spiritual army coming back to set up his kingdom on this earth to rule and reign in righteousness. We're told the final gate here in verse 31 is a reference to repairs being made, verse 31, to the mikvad gate. And uh, interesting enough, excuse me, I'm jumping down one far, too far. Uh, Verse 29, it says there was a reference to the east gate. Uh, The east gate being described there, interestingly enough, is uh, a reference, no doubt, uh, perhaps reminding us again of the return of the Lord and how the return of the Lord coming back in that way would be something that would be demonstrated in power and great glory, but a reference to how the Bible says he would come from the east, perhaps referencing how he will come back. The Bible says that he will return a light upon the Mount of Olives, which will split in two, and he will go up and set up and establish his kingdom and rule and reign in righteousness forever and ever. And again, just perhaps imagery reminding us of this glorious return of our Lord Jesus coming back to do the marvelous thing that he is about to do. It's interesting there, the final gate referenced in verse 31, it says that they also were working upon the mikvad gate. And that word mikvad there in verse 31 uh, literally could be translated the inspection or the recruiting gate. Uh, and how interesting that as Jesus comes back and he sets up his throne upon this earth and he will rule for a thousand years upon this earth and how people will look upon him as king of kings and this righteous king ruling with a rod of iron. No one will rebel against him. He will rule in powerful righteousness and how it will give an opportunity for a thousand year period of time. We will be in our glorified bodies, but there will be human beings who entered in that survived through the tribulation into that kingdom age who will then look at the glorified Lord reigning there in Jerusalem and will be inspecting him and will be recognizing who he is, the mikvah gate, the inspection gate. They will be inspecting Jesus for themselves and recognizing that this king, this powerful, mighty Lord, ruling in righteousness, we have heard that one time before he came to this earth and he came as a man and he humbly served and helped people and did miracles and taught people and helped people. And then he allowed himself to be spit upon, to be mocked, to be scourged and beaten. And he allowed himself to actually be crucified 
and suffer tremendously on our behalf that somehow we might be forgiven of our sins and they will hear these truths of the gospel as they see Jesus in his glorified form and they will have to inspect for themselves and believe that Jesus once came as a suffering, humble servant to become a savior for sin and they will have to inspect and consider them things, those things for themselves and exercise faith just as you and I did if they desire to experience salvation and to ultimately enter into that new Jerusalem at the end of the kingdom age. And through that process, Jesus will once again, as people inspect him, recruit some more followers. There will be a work of the Spirit as well in the midst of the kingdom age where some will turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and will be able to put their trust in him and experience forgiveness of sin and salvation. But they will have to look at him as a glorified king and muster up the faith to believe that somehow he once came so humbly and endured such mistreatment at the hands of humanity and died sacrificially on our behalf. And as they do this, if they're willing to believe that humbly, they will be recruited to be children of God, to be servants of Christ, and then they will be ready at the end of the great uh, kingdom age period They will be prepared with their names written in the book of life to escape then the judgment that will come at the time at the great white throne judgment when the books are opened and those whose names are written in the book of life will experience eternity with God, with our Lord Jesus Christ in the new Jerusalem, the eternal city forever and ever and ever described in Revelation 21 and 22 and those who did not inspect Jesus carefully, who did not choose to let him recruit them in the last hour of the kingdom age to be his followers, they will find themselves cast into the lake of eternal fire if they again refused to believe that that glorified king on the throne was once a humble, suffering servant as a savior. You know, what amazing things. I know in some ways we can look at a chapter like Nehemiah chapter 3 and think, how in the world are we supposed to glean something from these things here that are recorded for us in the Word of God? But God, by His Spirit, gave to us this record. And certainly, uh, interestingly enough, we were able to, in some ways, take up the entire time and consideration in a Bible study of some of the things here from chapter 3 to think through them. And I think certainly as we look at this, the Holy Spirit has lessons for us. And perhaps if nothing else, let me leave you with this encouragement that nothing wrong at times doesn't mean we have to read every name with maybe if we come to lists in the Bible or genealogies with kind of just skimming through certain sections. We don't get any extra points for trying to pronounce every name perfectly or stumbling through it. If anything, it will humble us a little bit, that's for sure, when we try and pronounce those names. But let us also remember that everything that's in the Word of God is inspired by the Spirit. The Bible says all Scripture, all of it, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, so that as men and women of God we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Hey, let me encourage you. God's Word is a good, balanced diet. And a good, balanced diet isn't just cherries and whipped cream and favorite ice cream sundaes all put in. Those are wonderful things. I like my mint chocolate chip ice cream and my potato chips. I confess that. 
But if I just ate those things that were my favorites, it wouldn't help me to stay healthy. We need our fruits, our vegetables, the things that give us good nourishment and a balanced diet, and even some of the things that I don't care for too much to eat, but yet I know are good for me. We need portions of those as well. Look at God's Word, the fruits, the vegetables, the desserts, all those things, but realize all of it has value. Read it all. That's why we study it all from Genesis to Revelation, and let's let it have its profit 